few months ago, I finally had the chance to visit the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C. It's the Smithsonian, so tickets are free, uh, but they remain in short supply. How many of you have had a chance to visit the museum? I see, okay, I see qu- quite a few hands. Uh, the two kind of dominant narratives around that museum are really grateful for those who have had a chance to visit and other people saying, I'm going to wait till the crowds die down. I invite you to consider the crowds may not die down, so you've been waiting, go for it. Uh, so let me tell you a little bit about how you can make that happen. Um, we, we were able to get tickets through the same-day timed entry passes. They're available every day at 6.30 a.m. I was online at like 6.28, refreshing, and then they, they really started going immediately, right, at 6.30. Uh, but we got tickets for the day we wanted to go, if that makes you anxious. Um, you can also get advanced timed entry passes on the first Wednesday of each month. So the next release will be this Wednesday at 9 a.m. for tickets during March 2019. But again, those will go fast too. But, you know, you, you can make it happen. And I really encourage you to visit. Because these systems only allow you to reserve between four and six tickets respectively, that's why we have still have not organized a bus here at UUCF to go. Maybe we will someday. Uh, but again, please do visit if you can. Uh, it's open from 10 to 10 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. Um, and based on the experience of myself and many others, I mean, if you can only go for a few hours, go for a few hours. But if you're able, you you really would be well served to block about five or six hours. And that includes some time to eat at the Sweet Home Cafe, which is quite excellent. It's kind of in the middle of the museum. A lot to say about the museum. I'll limit myself to a few brief comments. Overall, moving from the history galleries, which are literally multiple floors underground, all the way up to the, many of you have probably seen the museum, to the the top floor, um, which is above ground, to that highest level of the cultural galleries, is by turns devastating, inspiring, and Ultimately, for myself and others, an ecstatic experience. Um, I was reminded anew in an accessible and experiential way of both how much I have learned about African American history and culture and how very much I still have to learn. The biggest tip I would give you if you're not super anal retentive like me and closely studying your map the whole way through is that it would be easy to miss the contemplative gallery about half with the contemplative court. It's somewhat hidden on the concourse level, but be sure to check it out. It's both breath, it's breathtaking in its simplicity and its power. The insight that has lingered with me most is being reminded of the haunting parallels between the deaths and the legacies of Emmett Till and Trayvon Martin. The lynching of the 14-year-old Emmett Till in 1955 was part of, uh, for many people, a catalyst that helped wake people up to, to per, the need to participate in the civil rights movement. And the murder of the 17-year-old Trayvon Martin decades later has played a similar role in launching the modern Black Lives Matter movement. As the activist scholar Dr. Barbara Ransby has written, if the police murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson in summer 2014 was the fire that signaled the full-blown emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, then the vigilante murder with impunity of the young Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida in February 2012 was the spark. These are only a handful of ways that the museum is a powerful reminder, a call, a challenge to learn more about the depth and richness of African-American history and culture. 
In contrast to that connection between Emmett Till back then and Trayvon Martin today, growing up white in South Carolina, most of what I learned about racial history was looking back on it in the rearview mirror with remorse. But as Dr. Crystal Fleming highlights in her intentionally provocative book title um, published just this year with our own Beacon Press with the UUA, How to Be Less Stupid About Race. She writes, Our nation's emphasis on racial progress has obscured our attention to racist progress. The evolution of racist ideas and practices alongside anti-racist transformations. I find this framework quite helpful in learning to notice both progress in racial justice and negative adaptations in systemic racism. Let me give you a story from my own life of kind of using Dr. Fleming's uh, words of how I came to be less stupid about race, even if there's still progress to be made in that area, for sure. Uh, I attended, more than 15 years ago, I attended my first multi-day intensive workshop on dismantling racism, and one of the parts of that training that I remember most was the facilitator saying, there has been no progress in racial justice in this country. And whereas I'd found most of the parts of the workshop before and after that pretty compelling, you know, that's interesting, I hadn't thought about it that way, that's challenging, but I understand where you're coming from, I found myself incredulous to this claim that there had been no progress in working against racism in this country. Um, Admittedly, this was the early 2000s, so this was a time when you still heard commentators saying with a straight face things like Bill Clinton was our first black president, right? Uh, But I was resistant, nevertheless, to the idea that there had been no progress despite landmark achievements, the passage of the 13th Amendment in 1865, Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, the the, um, Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, we could go on. The facilitator's counterpoint was that despite these these real instances of progress in racial justice, systemic racism had remained the same because of insidious evolutions. The truth is, I still didn't really grasp the point. I didn't really get what the facilitators were talking about until quite a few years later, um, until I read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, that didn't come out until 2010, quite a few years after that. To limit myself to citing only one of Alexander's many profound points, she writes that today, today, there are more African-American adults under correctional control, prison, jail, probation, parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War. That was the data point that I was missing that was finally kind of an aha moment of, okay, now I get it. And I think the, the reason it took me a while to get it, I think, had probably a lot to do with my social location as a white male. Um, more than anything else, that piece of data convinced me to the extent not only of progress for racial justice, but also the progress of systemic racism, racist laws and institutions far more insidious and deeply entrenched than anyone's individual prejudice or lack thereof. If you don't have time to read Alexander's book, which I encourage you to do, or if you've read it and would like a refresher, a good, um, powerful distillation of many of the points made in her book is the Netflix documentary 13th, 1-3-T-H. So um, go home and watch that this afternoon if you can, 13th. Uh, you're welcome, Netflix, for the, uh, <laughs> for the advertisement. 
As I've continued my journey of striving to be less stupid about race, less fragile about race, um, and in contrast, more curious about race, more committed to staying at the table, even when I feel defensive, um, to accountably dismantle racism, the most recent aha moment was when I heard ta Coates say that what would prove to him that white supremacy was over in this country is the closing of the racial wealth gap. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I've never thought about that before. That's a really interesting, specific, measurable goal that we could be accountable to tracking and dismantling if we so chose as a society. In researching the racial wealth gap, I discovered a book published last year by Harvard University Press titled The Color of Money, Black Banks and the Racial Wealth Gap. It's written by Mirsa Broderand, a law professor at the University of Georgia. Significantly, uh, recent social scientific studies have shown that both whites and blacks tend to severely underestimate the extent of the racial wealth gap by about 25%. And that causes an unfounded optimism about progress and racial justice and an uninformed ignorance about the corresponding progress in systemic racism. So what does the data actually show us about the racial wealth gap? Today, across every socioeconomic level, blacks have significantly less wealth than whites. Over a third of black families have either negative wealth or no assets at all. In particular, the 2008 financial crisis devoured more than half of black wealth uh, in wealth of the black community, proving once again, in Dr. Baradaran's words, the adage that when Wall Street catches a cold, Harlem gets pneumonia. Uh, what, was, uh, what happened in particular that caused the loss of half of black wealth is that African Americans were routinely and systemically targeted for subprime loans, even when they were eligible for fixed rate loans. Zooming out for a more historical perspective, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863, the black community owned a total of 0.6% of wealth in the United States. That's not terribly shocking in light of centuries of enslavement. What is staggering is that more than 150 years later, that number has barely budged. Blacks still own about 1% of wealth in the United States. That statistic is not new, indeed, in a line often forgotten from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 I Have a Dream speech. He said that America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check that has come back marked insufficient funds. Remember that March on Washington where the I Have a Dream speech was delivered? It was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom, right? It was about economics uh, as well. Or to zoom in closer to home, today only um, 40 miles southeast from here in our nation's capital, we find that whereas nationwide white families hold 13 times the wealth of black families, in Washington, D.C., white households are 81 times wealthier than black families. So I've come to take ta Coates's point quite seriously that the closing of the racial wealth gap would be one strong indicator that we had gotten serious about dismantling white supremacy in this country, which doesn't mean to say we don't need to pay attention to the wealth gap or other angles, but that is one factor to trace. If you want to learn more, um, Google Ta-Nehisi Coates' essay from a few um, years ago titled The Case for Reparations. Uh, that's available free online. Um, 
You're welcome, Google, for the shout-out. Uh, or uh, if you want to go a little bit deeper, um, try Coates' book, uh, We Were Eight Years in Power, An American Tragedy, where he takes both that essay as well as quite one each from uh, essays over the, those eight years and, and contextualizes them, and we'll let you go deeper. A lot to be said as well about the history of how the racial wealth gap has been kept in place, and we explored a significant part of that story about this time last year in a sermon called The Half That Has Never Been Told. That's on our website if you want to check that out. So for now, I'll limit myself to noting one other interesting point from from a recent interview with Coates, in which he emphasized that as racist as our current president has and continues to be, this is to damn him with faint praise, he's arguably not our most racist president. Uh, that was probably, he's often compared to Andrew Jackson, which Coates would argue is the wrong Andrew. We should be focusing not on Andrew Jackson, but on Andrew Johnson, our 17th president who assumed the presidency in the wake of Lincoln's assassination. We were on a path to potentially making progress to dismantling white supremacy during the Reconstruction period following the Civil War. But Johnson joined the white Southern backlash and rolled back Lincoln's promises. He thoroughly undermined the Freedmen Bureau bill. That was the 40 Acres and a Mule um, Act. Uh, He fought the black rights movement, and he asserted that America should remain, quote, a white man's government. After After four centuries of slavery, 400 years in America, just months after the Civil War, Johnson was already advancing the argument that the Freedmen's Bill needed to, he vetoed it, and he said, because it would advantage blacks over whites and that it was time for blacks to fend for themselves. Just a few months after 400 years of enslavement. The more I learn about the history of white supremacy in this country, the more obvious the historical echoes are. As you've heard me say before, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it tends to rhyme. So today, when I think of a few years ago, Chief Justice John Roberts saying that, oh, well, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. That starts to, I mean, so it's like, You could see that kind of making sense on the surface, and then the more you learn, you're like, that sounds an awful lot like President Johnson's position on racial justice and willfully ignorant of what it would take to truly build a beloved community in this country based on what our UU6 principle calls peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all. Roberts is operating from a position of white privilege that tries to erase the history of systemic racism in this country and try to pretend that we've somehow magically arrived on an equal playing field. In contrast, our first African-American Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall famously wrote a dissenting opinion to the 1978, to a 1978 Supreme Court case on affirmative action in which he said that, quote, the legacy of years of slavery and years of second-class citizenship in the wake of emancipation cannot be so easily eliminated. He continued that bringing African-Americans into the mainstream of American life should be a state interest of the highest order, and a failure to do so is to ensure that America will forever remain a divided society. Forty years later, it is Justice Marshall, not Chief Justice Roberts, whose prediction seems prescient. As our eighth principle affirms, if we don't accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions, the tendency is for them to unconsciously or consciously perpetuate themselves. In Dr. King's final book, in which the title asked, where will we go from here, chaos or community? 
We have leaders today trying to sow chaos and division among us. But King wrote, if we want to choose community, he says, a society that has done something special against the Negro for hundreds of years must now do something special for him. This point is related to the insight today that, of course, all lives matter. No one's saying they don't. But given the history of racism in this country, there is a special need to be clear that black lives matter, which is why we have a Black Lives Matter banner facing Highway 15. All right. Or as the saying goes, it's inadvisable to attend a breast cancer fundraiser and chant, all cancers matter, all cancers matter, right? It's not helpful. Nor if you broke your arm would you want your doctor to say, oh, we're going to put you in a full body cast because all bones matter, right? But we also know we must proceed in the work of racial justice strategically because there are so many bad faith actors continuing to cynically stoke racial resentment for their own political gain. The truth is that racial justice is not a zero-sum game in which some Someone gaining means everyone loses. Uh, The loss of white privilege is not the same thing as reverse discrimination, right? But perhaps it is even more effective to be clear that a failure to act for racial justice, for a more fair, equitable, and integrated society, is worse for all concerned because we are so inextricably bound in a mutual garment of destiny. Social scientists have demonstrated that excessive inequality, including the racial wealth gap, erodes trust in society, it increases illnesses, it leads to corruption, and increases crimes. Langston Hughes wrote about it this way in his 1951 poem, A Dream Deferred. That's where King got a lot of that dream language, was reading Hughes. Hughes wrote, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat, or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load, or does it explode? It's what Baldwin meant when he wrote about the fire next time. May we be part not of perpetuating a dream deferred, but of turning our dreams into deeds. In that spirit, in a few moments, we're going to sing together, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Whenever I hear this song, I'm reminded that it was Rosa Parks' favorite hymn. It was the hymn that she would sing to herself when she needed some encouragement to continue what she knew was going to be a lifelong struggle to advance the cause of racial justice. In her early 80s, speaking about what she wanted her legacy to be, Park said, I'd like people to say I'm a person who always wanted to be free, but I didn't just want that for myself. She was committed to the work of collective liberation in which we all get free.
That book I mentioned by Dr. Crystal Fleming, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, I think she intentionally called it that because it was with Beacon Press, you know, with UUs, we like to know things, right? So I think she, How to Be Less Stupid About Race. So, if you, so those of you who read um, our, our fall book study of White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, who is a white woman, uh, I think uh, Dr. Fleming, who is an African-American woman, the How to Be Less Stupid About Race might be a good follow-up if you're interested, and it might be a good test if you're feeling like feeling less fragile around race. I think Fleming's book is pretty provocative, so you don't have to agree with everything she writes, but it might be a kind of test as you read through to notice if that defensiveness is kind of coming up and getting triggered and kind of an opportunity to work with that. Two other quick things. One, uh, so we are reading through this year, once a month, essays from the book The Radical King from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In a few weeks will be a chance to discuss his Christmas Eve sermon for peace, but very much related to uh, Megan's meditation on womanism. Um, Just to give you a preview next year, uh, instead of The Radical King, we're going to be reading excerpts from an anthology called The Bridge Called My Back, which is the fourth edition of an anthology uh, by people of, uh, by women of color in particular. Uh, Pointing out those differences that is, King was incredibly profound, right? But there's also, he was right, I mean, he was killed before the first Earth Day. He was killed before second wave feminism. So there's important insights. He, um, Mart, you know, he, he was telling white moderates why we can't wait. And he was at the same time telling Bayard Rustin, who was one of the principal organizers of the March on Washington and gay, you have to wait, Bayard. We can't do that work yet, right? So. There's a lot there. Uh, the final thing is in our own um, UU movement, um, Mark Morrison Reed, who has done the best work on African-American history, uh, has written a new book this past year called Revisiting the Empowerment Controversy about uh, the, the racial inflection point and controversy that happened in 1968 and 1969 in our own movement. Really helpful to go back and revisit that and quite instructive for what's going on today. So more to say about all of that. For now, as you continue this journey uh, into the next week, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another, care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.